This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to our second Stephen King adaptation movie with Misery from 1990, directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. This movie won an Academy Award for Best Actress for Kathy Bates. It is the only Stephen King adaptation to win an Oscar and made roughly $61 million domestically, finishing at number two in its opening weekend to Home Alone. Kathy Bates' Annie Wilkes was also ranked number 17 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes, and Villains list. So first up, neither of us has watched this movie before. What were your impressions, just generally? It was much more suspenseful than I thought it was going to be. Um, It's very simplistic as far as the overall theme, what was taking place. It made a lot with very little. It basically takes place in one room for the most part. It's, It's very raw as far as that goes. It's just very simple. and Well, not necessarily raw, but stripped down, I think is what you're looking for. Okay, yeah. And maybe that's a better way of phrasing it. It's ultimately the the two actors. I mean, you have the scenes that are in spliced with Richard Farnsworth uh, as the sheriff, but for the most part, it's just Kathy Bates and, and James Caan going back and forth. And their performances are really what ultimately makes the movie itself and is the driving force of the suspense of the film. I would tend to agree I think that one of the most notable things in putting my notes together was how minimal the cast list is. But even so, thinking through the scenes, other than the two primary actors, and then you did mention that there was a few scenes here interspliced with Buster the Sheriff, there just isn't a whole lot of other characters or other actors within this movie. It really comes down to that one room for the majority of the movie and his experiences within that room and Annie taking care of him slash holding him captive. And realistically, I know in my notes that I have an anecdote that Rob Reiner watched a lot of Hitchcock movies in order to prepare to do this movie. I think he was feeling a lot of potential criticism or at least the weight of what it would be to do a Stephen King adaptation that was more of a thriller or a horror film as opposed to what he did with Stand By Me, which was much more of a drama. And up to this point, with the the exception being Stand By Me, he had done mostly comedies. We're talking When Harry Met Sally, This Is Spinal Tap, Princess Bride. Those are much more comedic films. And so he had to widen his range. And I think you can see some clear influences 
with the small space being entrenched or the small size of the room. I mean, we're going to eventually get to movies like Rope that takes place all in one apartment within, I think, three rooms and mostly in one. We talk about Rear Window, which is almost exclusively in one room. These are small space, one room defined movies, and they feel somewhat claustrophobic at times, but you can see the clear impact. And nothing was more clear to me than every time we flashed onto the door handle of the room and you could either see it turning or it was the suspense of, was it going to turn? And I thought that he actually did a very good job at setting up the anticipation without necessarily causing the explosion that we've talked about on many different episodes. True. And I think actually a third character was the room itself. The confined space, the bed, the layout, the door itself, because the actors had to play in and out of that room. So it was actually like a third actor within that confine. And I think the setting often plays a character role in a lot of movies, but I would agree more so on this one than on some other ones, because I think it gives you a sense of scale every time you see the room and they pan back and really show you what the elements of that room are and how stripped down it is. But let me get into some more of the details of this movie then. I know you're not a creative writer, but you've written a lot for a living. If someone forced you to burn one of your more creative circuit court briefs that you spent a lot of time trying to write and research, how do you think you'd feel? Oh, absolutely horrible, because everything you write is a piece of you, and when it's more creative writing, it's even more a piece of you. It's like giving up a piece of your soul. I would have an impossible time, and just the idea of that happening, I could feel the pain, the anguish, the regret. I'm just trying to put myself in the headspace, and when that moment happens, I thought about if I only had like one copy of any of the scripts that I've written, where I don't think I could ever reproduce exactly what I wrote. It it just feels in that moment like you're gasping for air. You know when somebody hits you in like the solar plexus or like really knocks the wind out of you and you're just, you're feeling that gasp of air and you almost can't breathe? That would be almost the immediate impact of somebody taking that away from me. You know, and I, I can tell you from experience, having spent about four hours writing a creative novel and doing something, you know, where you were doing... In the old days when computers were early and they didn't automatically save, and somebody comes up and says, Daddy, play with me. Well, I will when I'm done, and then hits the off button on the computer and losing four hours worth of writing. I wonder who that might be. Yeah. Never was able to get back into the flow of it after that. So that leads me to my next question then. If you have read or seen either this movie or The Shining, which we're going to be discussing coming up here in January, why would you ever want to be a writer? (laughs) I mean, it's the one thing that I think Stephen King is the most pessimistic about is the process of writing. I think it was Gertrude Lerner who said, I hate writing, but I love having written. 
But there are a lot of his novels that have to do with either his personal demons or the process of how he goes about writing, and he uses them allegorically in order to sell, tell some very interesting tales. But they just seem so horrifying. So other than the basic plot summary, which I think most people kind of generally understand about this movie, and we'll provide a, a summary here for everybody in a minute, but what is this movie about? I think it's prescient, really, because I think it foretold the whole stalker mentality that's going on in the world. The availability that people have, stars and celebrities, to the public. Well, for that matter, not even that context of just famous people. We're talking about people's social media accounts and potential employers stalking people on Facebook or on their Instagram to try and see if there are unredeeming photos or things that would necessarily take them out of the running for a potential job. We're talking about ex-boyfriends or girlfriends stalking their exes through their social media platforms. So I think it does foretell some of that aspect of it. But the thing that I really thought of the most is in context of another movie that I thought was also somewhat of a tie-in. Even though Rob Reiner uses certain other movie tropes from Hitchcock movies, particularly The Doorknob, those I think you can see from certain Hitchcock movies. There's also a way that he specifically focuses the, the camera on particular people and has them spike the lens. The way he kind of frames the shots whenever he has Annie Wilkes on screen, like when the thunderclap happens near the end of the movie and she shows up and Paul wakes up and she just is seen with her face just spiking the camera. That to me is very reminiscent of some of the classic Hitchcock movies where you'd have people face directly into the camera and it would be a straight on shot like that. But to me, the the Hitchcock movie that deals with this the most is stuff where he didn't borrow camera tricks. It's Vertigo obsession. And I know that King admits that really Annie Wilkes is actually representation of all of his addiction problems. And so it actually turns the story on itself. But if you just look at it from the base story of the obsession she has for Paul, I think that's the more interesting thing to me than it is for why Stephen King wrote this in the first place. If I remember, there was a TV show and uh, starred Pam Dauber and Rebecca Schaefer, who's a young actress, and uh, the, the show would have been on probably after Stephen King wrote his book, before this movie, where Rebecca Schaefer was murdered by uh, a stalker, somebody who became infatuated with her from the TV show that she was on. And uh, that started the whole trend of these obsession-driven people. I know Stephen King had people who were so obsessed with him that they stalked him at one point. I don't know if it was before or after this film, but the awareness of this took place about the same time the film came out. It was something that was not often discussed per se. Well, and I think even... If we take it out of the context, again, of celebrities and just make it more ordinary, more 
everyday run of the mill and we're talking about it in the context of a modern society where you can stalk just about anybody on their social media accounts because everyone has one and everybody decides to put a lot of information that they probably shouldn't on there, just my opinion. But if you're looking for a summation line from this movie, you'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. Yeah. So let's give some more context to this movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. After a car crash, novelist Paul Sheldon, James Kahn, is pulled from the wreckage by former nurse Annie Wilkes, Kathy Bates, who claims to be his biggest fan. He is brought to her remote cabin to recover. However, her fandom turns dark when she discovers Sheldon is killing off her favorite character from his novels. As Sheldon figures out how to escape, Annie's fantasies lead her towards more violence, threatening Sheldon's life. Will Sheldon find a way out? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Rob Reiner as director, William Goldman as writer, Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, James Kahn as Paul Sheldon, Richard Farnsworth as Sheriff Buster, Francis Sternhagen as Deputy Virginia, Lauren Bacall as Marcia Sindel, Graham Jarvis as Libby, and Jerry Potter as Pete. Recognition for this movie, Misery opened on November 30th, 1990. It grossed $10 million on its opening weekend, finishing second at the box office behind Home Alone. It eventually finished with $61 million domestically. The film currently holds a score of 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 75 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. At the 1991 Oscars, Kathy Bates won Best Actress over Angelica Houston for The Grifters, Julia Roberts for Pretty Woman, Meryl Streep for Postcards from the Edge, and Joanne Woodward for Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. In 2003, Annie Wilkes was ranked number 17 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. The hobbling scene in the film in which Annie breaks Paul's ankles with a sledgehammer, was ranked number 12 on Bravo's 2004 program, The 100 Scariest Movie Moments. And finally, in 2009, Chris Egertson of Bloody Disgusting ranked Misery fourth on his list of 10 claustrophobic horror films. Did you know? Stephen King was initially reluctant to sell the film rights to Misery because he was skeptical that a Hollywood studio would make a movie faithful to his vision. However, King was impressed with one adaptation of his works, Stand By Me from 1986, and agreed to sell Misery under the provision that Rob Reiner would either produce or direct the film. Did you know? Rob Reiner was questioned before heading into production if this was really the right project for him, as his background was mostly comedy up to this point. He stated, quote, It's important for me to find my way into the film, and as you will see, the movie's really about a man who is trapped by his own success, and is desperately trying to break out and establish himself in a different way. I felt very much those feelings when I finished All in the Family. Did you know? Rob Reiner studied Alfred Hitchcock movies to figure out how to shoot a thriller, watching every Hitchcock film. Reiner had Hitchcock on the brain so much that James Conn overheard Reiner chastising himself one day on set, asking himself, who do you think you are, Alfred Hitchcock? Did you know? According to William Goldman's book, Four Screenplays, The role of Paul Sheldon was offered to Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Michael Douglas, Richard Dreyfuss, Harrison Ford, Morgan Freeman, Mel Gibson, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, William Hurt, twice, Kevin Kline, Al Pacino, Robert Redford, 
Denzel Washington, and Bruce Willis, all of whom declined. Willis, however, would later play the role later on Broadway. Did you know? James Kahn had to stay in bed for 15 weeks of shooting. Kahn said he thought that Rob Reiner was playing a sadistic joke on him, knowing the actor would not enjoy not moving around for so long. Kahn was not used to playing a reactionary character and found it much tougher to play. Did you know? James Kahn once showed up to the set hungover, and all of the scenes he shot that day were unusable. Rob Reiner told Kahn that he had to do the scenes again because there was a problem at the lab. When Kahn learned it had nothing to do with labs, he offered to cover the money he lost for the studio. Did you know? Annie Wilkes is Stephen King's favorite written character because she was always surprising to write with unexpected depth and sympathy. Did you know? Stephen King was quite impressed with Kathy Bates' performance in this film, so much so that he later wrote two more roles for her. The title role in his novel, Dolores Claiborne, was written with Bates in mind, and Bates later starred in the film adaptation of Dolores Claiborne in 1995. King also wrote the script for the TV miniseries The Stand in 1994. His original novel featured a male character named Ray Flowers. But upon hearing that Bates wanted to be involved in the miniseries, King rewrote the part as a woman, Ray Flowers with an E, just so Bates could play the part. Did you know? In 1991, Kathy Bates became the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Actress in a Horror or Thriller film. The first performer to win an Oscar for a horror film was Frederick Marsh for his performance as the title character in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. The only other winners for acting in a horror film were Ruth Gordon for her performance as Mia Farrow's new neighbor with a hidden agenda in Rosemary's Baby from 1968, where she won Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster for Best Actor and Best Actress in The Silence of the Lambs from 1991, and Natalie Portman for Best Actress in Black Swan from 2010. Did you know? Misery was almost turned into a Broadway play, with Julia Roberts as Annie Wilkes. King vetoed the idea because Annie is, in his words, a brawny woman who can sling a guy around, not a pixie. However, in 2015, a Broadway adaptation was ultimately produced to critical and commercial success, starring Bruce Willis as Paul Sheldon and Laurie Metcalf as Annie Wilkes. Did you know? The movie downplays one of the key themes in the book, Paul's addictions and substance abuse and how that plays into his captivity. The book gives us a lot of backstory about his history of substance abuse and how he'd recently gotten himself back on track. Being held in captivity, coupled with her feeding him Novril pills all the time, Novril is a fictional form of codeine, an opiate, has caused Paul to relapse, and he has swung into full-on addiction to the Novril codeine. These scenes of the drug-addicted writer banging away compulsively at the typewriter as a kind of panacea bring up memories not just of The Shining and its substance-abusing writer, but also of King himself, who is the real deal and the inspiration for all of this. King himself has said that Annie is a symbol of Paul's own addictions come to life, holding him captive, trying to kill him. And with that, we will take our first break and be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing another Alfred Hitchcock favorite of ours with Rope from 1948, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, screenplay by Arthur Lawrence, starring James Stewart, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, best performance, Kathy Bates? 
Yes, obviously. Although I'm going to give you my secondary performance and indicate that I almost said it was equal, and that's James Kahn. James Kahn had to do so much with so little. His facial expressions, his overall acting, the the way he presented himself, it was phenomenal. Kathy Bates just did such a great over-the-top job being creepy and being a sociopath. It was a masterful work, but considering that she had probably, I, I think, actually, the easier role, Khan had to try and, and do the emotional aspect without really being able to move. See, I don't know if I look at it quite that way. Now, I'll get to Khan here. He's actually my most charismatic, but I don't think I agree that he had the easier job. I actually think you could have very easily overacted the Annie Wilkes part. I think you had to play it within a certain range, but never quite cross certain lines. Because to me, it could have become a caricature very easily. And we've said this for a while, that when you have these dramatic overswings and you're talking about when she really starts to get upset and worked up and starts to go off the rails, you can tell, but it's never quite to the point. Yes, it's terrifying, but it's not ridiculous. And I think in a lesser actor's hands, it would have been ridiculous. Similarly, and it's a movie we've covered, the character of Mama in The Waterboy is an absolutely ridiculous character, but it's not to the point of being almost unbelievable because Kathy Bates is acting in it. I do think that she has a certain credibility that she brings to any character that she imbues just by her sheer presence in the film. And this might be one of the seminal acting performances in a thriller of all time. Well, I will say, and I've, I've enjoyed her because the other, some of the other Academy Award nominees she's gotten, she did it for Primary Colors. And I'll remember watching that film. It was one of those where I was completely and absolutely stressed out from work. My old office was next to the movie theater. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I called your mother. I think she was at home at the time and said, I just don't know if I have to stay here till five o'clock working, I'm going to fucking blow my brains out. So I just said, I'm leaving. And so I walked out the door down and went into the first movie that sounded interesting, which was next door. They were doing matinees and watched her and that and was very impressed with her performance. And for that matter, John Travolta's performance as well in that film. But So I've seen her in several films, and I always thought she has done a very credible job. She actually had quite a lengthy stage career before she got cast in this film. And I think that that helped because stage actors have to have a certain training, which they have to be able to present themselves in a way that connects with the audience, because otherwise a stage actor loses everything if you don't connect with the the live audience. And I think stage actors have a way of going and transposing that into the camera being the stage or the, the audience. And so I think that's her mechanism. Well, I'll also say it probably provides 
really good training for this confined space movie. Stages are not obviously very big and you have very little space with which to work. So just the basic physicality and how you stand, how you present yourself, I think would have been more natural for somebody that was of the stage. And so I think that probably carries into the performance as well. But really, to me, she is mental illness personified. You can see a lot of different characteristics and a lot of different illnesses within this character. And I think it's a smorgasbord of take your pick on what is actually wrong with her. Well, the uh, memory book, uh, if I remember right, and I'm drawing the context because I was watching it over my lunch. Was it her father who committed suicide or who? I'm pretty sure it's her husband. I'm not sure about that because of the time frame. Because right after that, it showed pictures of her as a younger person. And one of the things that I've noted from just being involved in disability law as I am and seeing people who have mental health issues the impact of a parent's suicide that and what it has on the children is quite immense and has lingering effects that cause further mental impairments and problems for the children for decades. So that was part of when I saw that, I'm like, oh, well, maybe that's kind of the introduction of where she kind of comes into this, I guess, maybe. I really don't think we need her full backstory, though, in order to understand her as a character. It's kind of like the Joker. As long as you understand their mission, you understand them. Agreed. So I actually went for William Goldman as my best secondary. I think the script for this is exceptional. And he's always great at dialogue. There are some absolutely exceptional dialogue moments in this movie for just being two people kept in a room. And the fact that people wanted to adapt this to a stage play should be obvious to most people because the dialogue is so well-written. It seems like it's from somebody who wrote for plays. Yes. So then I had James Conn as my most charismatic. I do really find him oddly endearing in a way I haven't found him in other films that I really like. To be fair, I really love him in The Godfather, but it's for very different reasons because he's headstrong, he's brash, he's all over the place, and you know he's just destined for trouble, and he's getting in his own way. But in this movie, he's so reserved, and that kind of thin smile that he puts on all the time to just kind of placate Annie. I just don't know if I could under or get through that situation in the same way, but I'm probably just trying to survive in the way he is. There was a concept that I talked about at one of my recent movie discussion groups that I have about every three weeks and the idea of the audience character. And I think that in this particular movie, he is our audience character. He, we place ourselves in the sympathetic role of if we're captive, almost no one's going to place themselves in the role of Annie. While you might have some sympathy for her and what has kind of gone on in her life to get her to that point. I don't think anyone is saying, boy, I really feel for her or I really understand what she's going through. Instead, you're like Paul. You're feeling captive. You're feeling the pressure of being in this room, having your legs completely mangled and 
not being able to really escape, being forced to forego one of your life's works in order to write something that you're being forced to write. So I find him charismatic because he's the the person I connect to most in the movie. For me, the uh, most charismatic I felt was Rob Reiner. I looked up just to make sure that the definition of charismatic was as somebody that presents themselves in such a way that people want to follow. And I think Rob Reiner had a vision of how this film was going to be done and was able to present it and help bring the actors along within that confine. So I thought, as we discussed at the beginning of the the show, that um, he has done so many great films over a very short period of time. And there's certain element that, that in their most basic stripped down form, he doesn't have to be overly elaborate. And he's able to present the story with very minimal peripheral stories, concepts, visuals, etc. It's usually a story about people and about relationships and conversation. And to that extent, even though he's had this is a different genre from him, he clearly had an idea of what he wanted to accomplish, that this was a relationship movie, although a bad relationship, but still a relationship movie. I would say there's one other big through line through all of these movies that you can talk about this is Spinal Tap, or you can talk about Harry Met Sally, Princess Bride, American President, uh, A Few Good Men. All of them have exceptional dialogue, and he had good taste for how to pick scripts. Yes, but he had been a writer. I mean, Rob Reiner started out as a writer, as his dad did, and Rob Reiner wrote for the Smothers Brothers. So let's go to best scene then. I have nominated opening credits slash car accident, The Profanity, Dirty Birdie, Paul Ventures Out, The Paper Smudges, Dinner with Paul Sheldon, The Scrapbook, The Hobbling, Buster in the Basement, Final Struggle, and The Epilogue. Did I really miss any? No, not really. I have different captions or names for them, but okay, I I agree. Sure. These are just the ones I kind of came up with. So what do you think is the best scene? I called it Dinner with Drugs. It's the scene with Kathy Bates and James Conn sitting at the table, and he has her leave or makes an excuse for her to leave the room, and he puts the drugs into her wine, uh, a lethal dose. And then she comes back, and they go to toast, and she spills the wine all over the table. And if you watch just the emotions that James Conn presented at that time, it's terror. I mean, he like everything he had been working towards, everything that he thought was going to be his freedom, and that fleeting moment just disappears. It's just gone, and he doesn't know what to say or do. He's stupefied at that moment in time, and you can see that he's almost in tears because it's gone. And to me, that's a, an extremely well-acted scene, and a pivotal moment that he knows that no matter what he does, even the most minor things that he plans, 
he's going to have to figure out some way to go way beyond that in order to succeed and get his freedom. I do really enjoy that scene. I think for some of the unanswerable questions that it raises, which I'm going to have here at the end. But for me, one of the better scenes is actually the paper smudges because it turns from a scene and it's the one really, really notable flip for me where everything is in kind of that romantic feeling where she's kind of flattering and trying to put on this air that they somehow have this affection for each other. And kind of ironically, I think they do in a, in a certain way, but it's not like a fawning affection exactly. She has that for him, but he doesn't quite have that for her. But that him just pointing out something very small that she didn't get the right kind of paper makes her just like completely snap, (laughs) start lashing out. And I think it's the one scene where you don't quite see it coming. And it's just this kind of weird shift within the course of the scene, because every other scene up till that point, particularly has been really defined by her either being very affectionate or complimentary or sycophonic. Sure. Sycophantic. That'd be a good word. Or she's being rather ruthless or just on edge. And this one you get both. And I think it's really the, the notable dichotomy within the scene itself that I think makes it more apparent to me where her breaks are. Okay. Favorite scene? Oh, boy, this one was tough. I guess ultimately it's the last portion, or at least the first half of the, the, final, or the final scene or one of the final scenes. And that's his conniving to burn the misery novel and set her apart so that he can ultimately smash her with the typewriter. I mean, it's so fitting that the very thing that was supposed to be his mechanism for expression becomes the thing that's supposedly going to save him. To be honest, I thought when I was watching it that he would use the lighter fluid and just squirt her full of lighter fluid and just set her afire. Yeah, I thought so too. I know that's what I would have done. For me, it's Dirty Birdie because... It's the interesting part where you know something is off the first time you meet Annie and you you think there's something quite there and you kind of get hints of it in the profanity thing where she spills the soup and it kind of goes off the rails a little bit. But you know that her reading this book and her loving his novels as much as she does, you know already what's coming, that he kills off her favorite character in the book. And so you're just waiting for this moment when she's just going to come in and snap and you get it. And it's actually a rather funny expression by her coming in and just absolutely exploding that she can't live without this particular character that she's invested so much of her life into. And it's going away because he wanted to redefine himself as a writer. But the most indelible moment to me is the hobbling. Oh, yes. And I knew it was coming because it's so infamous. I know. And I was just having such a difficult time knowing that it's coming. I almost fast forwarded through it because I'm like, I don't want to watch this. It's reminiscent of if you remember when you were kids and 
uh, Alice and your sister, uh, you wanted to be a doctor, so we were watching surgery. And the only surgery I had a problem was when they did the deviated septum and they were going to use the hammer and chisel and bust the guy's nose. That was it. I was done. I'm not watching this. Turn off the TV. To watch her put his feet between those the two-by-four with that sledgehammer, I'm going, I'm done. I can't watch this. But I did. And I will not forget it. Yeah. It's clearly the most famous moment from this movie with some clear distance between anything else that goes on. I think the movie's much bigger than that one scene, but I think it is by far the most memorable. It's kind of like, it's not quite to the level of the shower scene in Psycho, but for me, it kind of held the same gravitas. I knew it was coming, and like that one, I dreaded it. I could see it playing out, and so I was a little bit relieved when it's raining outside and you see the thunderclap and she puts the needle in his arm, and I'm like, oh, that's it? Okay, so when does the hobbling happen? And then it's broad daylight the next morning, and you're like, she's not going to do this in broad daylight, is she? Yeah. Kind of disobeys the horror cliche when that happened, and so I'm like, oh my god. But just to see his ankle bend completely 90 degrees, it's just, oh, oh. Yeah. So, all right. That will take us to our second break. We'll be right back. Before we get back to the show, just a general thank you to all our listeners. We hit another milestone on the show with our 15,000 download this last week. Thank you to all of you from both of us for your support. We will continue to make this show until we either run out of movies or you tell us not to do the show anymore, which I hope you will never do. But thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Again, unfortunately, we do. This week we lost two. Marva Hicks, 66. She was an American singer and actress. She was on Mad About You, One Life to Live, and Star Trek Voyager. I think for the majority of her career, she spent a lot of her time on Broadway. But as you did say, she had a few bit parts here in TV. And I think a few people might recognize her from any one of those shows. I don't think she was a major character actor, but certainly somebody that might be familiar to certain audiences of that time period. We also lost Henry Silva, 95. To be honest, I didn't know Henry Silva was still alive. But he uh, apparently had been very active uh, until about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. He had been a longtime character actor. Because he was Hispanic, he played a wide variety of roles, playing American Indians, playing Hispanics, playing Italians. He happened, uh, the story I happened to find was his he had been in a few movies and shows, and he pulled up to a stoplight in, in Los Angeles, and somebody yells, Henry, I got a part for you in a film. And he looks over, and it's Frank Sinatra. And Sinatra has a part for him in Ocean's Eleven. And at that point in time, he became friends with Sinatra and the Rat Pack and was one of the peripheral members, where he would go to Vegas periodically and hang with the Rat Pack. Uh, he was also a Maturian candidate and a ghost dog, the way of the samurai, uh, did the voiceover, I believe, which is a more recent uh, production. But uh, long, long career, 95. So there are two notable things in particular about him. He was the last surviving member of the original Ocean's Eleven cast from 1960, 
and he actually what or his death was announced by i think dean martin's daughter was the first to to speak publicly on it dina he, maybe i i think it was in the article that i sent you over the weekend when i saw the notification on my phone about his passing but apparently he was still very close with her and that family and so i think the bonds of that clearly went beyond that i guess he was known very highly among people that knew him closely as one of the nicest men you could ever meet which it was strange for how many bad characters he ended up playing in his movie career yes. not bad as in like terrible or bad acting but rather just he was the villain a lot and notably and this goes to the other second point I wanted to say he's kind of a vestige of an era that's really seems so far away from where we're at now in this whole culture of representation and authenticity of roles for particular especially racial minorities the fact that in the Manchurian candidate he plays a Korean Yes. It just speaks to where Hollywood was at that time that a Italian Puerto Rican descent immigrant could get away as being a Korean. I know it's not quite as bad as Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany, but Well, that one was much more caricature racism, but that also wasn't that far removed from about the same time period where that was pretty commonplace post World War Two. I know. So we remember both of these towering figures for their contributions, and we give them a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best, funniest lines. Paul Sheldon, you want it? You want it? Eat it. Eat it till you choke, you sick, twisted fuck. Annie Wilkes. God came to me last night and told me your purpose for being here. I'm going to help you write a new book. Paul, you think I can whip one out? Annie, oh, but I don't think, Paul, I know. The Annie line with the most echoes and symmetry throughout the movie. Annie Wilkes, I'm your number one fan. There's nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I will take good care of you. I'm your number one fan. Annie. I thought you were good, Paul, but you're not good. You're just another lion, old, dirty birdie. And I don't think I'd better be around you for a while. And I don't even think about anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. You better hope nothing happens to me, because if I die, you die. Annie, now the time has come. I put two bullets in my gun, one for me and one for you. Oh, darling, it will be so beautiful. I don't have anything else. Okay, well, I have one more, and it's perhaps the most unintentionally funny moment of the entire movie. Annie Wilkes, what's the ceiling that Dago painted? <laughs> the Sistine Chapel? Yeah, that and Misery's Child. Those are the only two defined things in this world. Yeah. <laughs> that took me so far back. I'm just like, whoa, what the hell? How do you not correct her? Oh. It wasn't Diego. <sighs> yeah. All right. Stanley Rubrick. Legacy's up first. I guess I can lead off for once. All right. So 
industry, I think that the character of Annie Wilkes is somewhat celebrated, and I think by extension, Kathy Bates has given her rightful place among one of the great acting performances. And her career is obviously raised in stature by this that pretty much launched her acting, well, I shouldn't say acting career, but her movie career. But outside of that, I really don't know if this is like one of the Stephen King adaptations or anything that anybody points to as saying, okay, this is like an exceptional work. In fact, I don't even think it's mentioned in the like Mount Rushmore of Rob Reiner films, which maybe says more about him and the quality of his work. Because I, I think this is a pretty good movie, but this seems somewhat of a forgotten film. It's not mentioned in the same breath as like The Shining. It's certainly not among the major horror thriller films that people talk about. So I have to kind of straddle the difference a little bit here because I still think critically it's held in some regard, but not quite to the level of some others. So I'll go with a 3.5 for the industry portion of it. For the audience, because it's slipped and faded away a bit, and because this isn't a movie that you're going to probably see much on TV, this isn't a movie that a lot of people probably still talk about, it's kind of faded into the background. I just, I'll go with a two, just to be kind of nice on it, so for a 5.5. You're slightly better than I am. I also went with 3.5 for the industry for a lot of the reasons you indicated. I think it kind of helped James Kahn's career a little bit. He had to actually do something other than be a aggressive heavy in a film, the tough guy. And I think it led to a few other roles, including one we're going to do here towards the end of the year, Elf, where he had to play more of a more tender character than his normal persona. But the public, I mean... And you gave it a 2, I thought about it too, and then I went with a 1.5, because we couldn't even find it on streaming anymore. In this day and age, the idea of a film that you couldn't find in streaming, or for that matter, renting, we had to buy the film. Yeah, I think that's the bigger point of it is, is that you couldn't rent it for streaming. You know, there have been films where we couldn't necessarily find it on a Netflix or a Hulu or whatever else on a particular week, but we could rent it for three or four bucks. We had to actually buy this version because we couldn't find it any other way. Which just says to me there's not that much public interest in it. So I went with a 1.5, and the only reason I went that high is because if you mention the term misery, and I talked about this to a lot of people within my office, And admittedly, they all work for me, so they're going to be a little kinder. But the thing they always remembered, of course, is the hobbling scene, because everybody remembers that aspect and how whether you've seen the film or not, you know that Kathy Bates is absolutely a sociopath and creepy. So to that extent, everybody remembers that. So I went with a 1.5 for that reason. So I had a 5 for total. So that's a 5.25 average between the two of us? Impact significance. So again, I go with a 3.5 for the industry. I think at the time this was recognized, I think it's a momentous achievement for Kathy Bates, not only to be nominated, but to actually win best actress for this role. This isn't the type of role you normally see go to people that win best actress. It's usually for much more dramatic material stuff. That's a lot more heavy dialogue as opposed to how they just have a presence on screen 
their certain physicality and the way they just simply present themselves as, as you put it, creepy. To me, a lot of the acting performance in this is the nonverbal portions of who she is and how this character flips on a dime. So I do think that it has that token piece of it. But outside of that, it got no other nominations. It was fine as far as reception among the critics. I, I don't think anybody was necessarily too high on it, but nobody was really that low on it. It had some kind of middling support. And the audience portion for this, it did marginally well at release, but this is like the 90s. This was the heyday of movies, the late 80s and into the 90s, where medium or kind of these uh, mid-budget movies could make back a lot of money. That's why studios like Miramax or the Weinstein Company were able to make a good portion of money and get bought out by major studios. Fox Searchlight could make a mid-budget film and make back twice, three times its budget. You just don't get that anymore. And so for the time, as far as an impact and significance, you're launching Kathy Bates' career, and she does, ends up going on to do a ton of different films. I mean, she's a recognizable actress at this point for a lot of people. It was fine as far as release, but it wasn't like over the top. So I ended up going 3.5 for both, for seven. I'm higher. For the industry, the fact that she got, or Kathy Bates got the Academy Award nomination was huge. And the critics loved the film. I mean, I read through a list of some of the the critical reviews, and they loved it. They thought it was well done, well performed. There was very little that they didn't like. And while it drew okay, or better than okay, it was good, solid in the movie theaters, this movie... Back in that time frame, because, of course, you were just a baby. I lived it. And this film was discussed a lot within that year, two-year period. And the uh, psychopathic fan became very prevalent and part of culture at that time. Not only I mentioned the uh, Rebecca Schaefer's unfortunate murder, but... And I think it started a, a process where people were like, maybe there's a lot more to being famous than what we anticipated. So I think it had a little more impact. So I wanted the 4.5 for the industry and a 4.5 for the public for a 9. So that's an 8 between us. Usually we don't have quite that level of uh, discrepancy between the two of us. It's usually much closer, so that's interesting. Yeah, well, some of us are right, some of us aren't. Fuck off, Dad. <laughs> yeah, okay. Novelty. This is a distinct adaptation from the book. As we discussed, there were some themes from the book that weren't adapted into the movie, I think, for the sake of time. I think it's actually a fairly tight movie that has to just deal with the captivity and not bring a lot of the other aspects of the book that I'm sure you could spend much more time with in order to develop the characters a lot more. If this was maybe a mini series, as it might be made today, you could set, spend a lot more time with Paul's addictions and how he's feeling on a day-to-day -day basis for depending on how long he was in captivity. But for the sake of time, they obviously had to make a different script, and I do think that it's a very well-done script. 
So that way I separate the two from, from the book because the dialogue is creative and it's great as with pretty much every William Goldman movie. And it's an all-time virtuoso performance from Bates. So I would probably, because of the subject material, that it's a more grounded horror film, that I think this is somewhat realistic. I would probably go for normally about a 6.5, but given Bates' performance, I will actually raise it to a 7.5 just on the back of that. Obviously, I can't go extremely high because it is taken from a book. I push back on that notion. I don't think the because it has source material. Otherwise, we're talking that all adapted screenplays, no matter how they're done, can't be of the same novelty as something that's just purely original. So Pulp Fiction will always be better than Gone with the Wind. I understand your point, okay? And so I'm not giving it huge marks on it, but to some extent I am just the way I'm grading it. But ultimately, the subject matter was poignant at the time. It was something that was just starting to become a thing, which was this infatuation where it's the obsession that uh, people have with famous people because of the, you know, what they're doing. People buy into their stories, their writing, their whatever. This is about the time, I mean... There's a lot of jokes that are being made about Trekkies and how they would memorize the entire lines of every episode and such like that. So that was going on, but it was not put into the context outside of that very often. Um, So I think the subject matter, more than anything, is what made this novel. And I think it was cutting edge when it was done. So I gave it an eight for that reason. You know, I... One of the things we talked about, I guess I hadn't considered when I was putting my notes together, is somewhat how ahead of its time the notion of this is. I think part of, and this is where I'm going to come on classicness a little bit, so I'm going to mix the two here for a second, and maybe it'll affect my novelty score and I might go back and change it here. But we, we talk about how this would age into a modern sensibility with social media. I think this is a much different movie if you're trying to make this movie in 2022 with cell phones and with GPS tracking and a lot of the other modern comforts that we've gotten used to. But by the flip side, you're also talking about social media. And we already talked about its importance in how people just regularly live their lives. I've heard people that are related to me or friends of mine who will just regularly stalk people as they put it. They volunteer the word stalking on what they do for certain people on social media. Now, I've always been somewhat uncomfortable with that term, but they freely offer that term up. And so I I just, I have a little bit of a weird thought or feeling about putting way too much of myself in a more public space like that. That's why I have such a problem with posting stuff on social media, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. And I know we have all of those for the show. And obviously this sounds really strange coming from a podcaster whose voice is on hours upon hours of recordings over three seasons. But I just, I I have a weird way of thinking about just stepping outside of myself a little bit and saying, boy, if this show actually like took off and and 
really did some numbers like some other podcasts, and we had to deal with some of the level of either blowback or guests that were maybe unruly or whatever as part of the show, it just, it leaves me a little uneasy from that sense of it. But by the same standpoint, I think there is a clear distinction between when this movie was done and now. I think there are a lot of distinctions that I have from movies that were done in the 90s, pre-cell phone era, and now. Where if this movie was done now, you're not just trying to look for the, what is it, the rotary phone in her living room that clearly doesn't have any parts to it underneath, but you're instead looking for the cell phone somewhere. Or you're trying to send out a signal somehow by a computer that somebody's left open. Or instead of scrapbooking, you just have a whole bunch of browser history stuff of all these articles that you've saved over time about your exploits. Things of that nature. And so this movie is clearly dated from that standpoint. And it kind of, any of these movies from the 90s that are kind of stuck in that that role pre-internet age always have kind of a, a little bit of a take-me-out-of-the-movie feel to them because of it. But at the same time, I do think that this is ahead of its time. So that takes me to where I originally had my classicness score. I think that the premise of this movie actually, if it were to happen in real life now, to say one of the Kardashians, would you actually be that shocked? Oh. So I think by that standpoint, because it has a clear aging but because it's also ahead on some of this, I'm going to give it a nine. I can't quite get to the 10, but I do think this is actually ages pretty well as a film because the acting performance is still top notch. There really isn't anything lessened by how well the movie was done and crafted. And I, I think from a standpoint of that, there's nothing cringeworthy about this. I, I think a nine is, is well-deserved here. I, I thought a lot about this, and if we'd have done this probably four to six weeks ago, I could not have addressed this issue quite to this extent. Having experienced obsessive behavior and violent behavior, I, I'm going to share with the audience a personal experience. And that is, is uh, if anybody had happened to hear, and I know it was across the country, about a judge in Wisconsin who was shot execution style by a defendant who had a death list. Not only was the judge a personal friend of mine, I was on the death list. I had been the defense attorney for the individual. And I just happened to be on vacation at the time out of the country. And to this day, I can't say that he didn't think of starting with me and happened to go by my house and see I wasn't home and realize that, well, I'm not the person to start with. And so instead, he went to the judge's house and executed him. This kind of situation is way too personal to me to realize or to not realize that this is the type of creepy, over-the-top behavior that has become so commonplace in our culture that in 1990, we never envisioned this would be the case. But we have become a society of voyeurs. 
We're fascinated by true crime podcasts because it puts us in the position where we're right within the context of the crime itself. We watch Real Housewives of Atlanta, Hollywood, wherever. We watch the Kardashians. We watch whoever that's doing these. And we've put ourselves in a position where we're voyeuristic without thinking of the ramifications. And I can tell you the ramifications of this to be put into this position is chilling. It is frightening. It is psychologically draining. Um, I will. Not, I could not describe for you the feelings that I had for several weeks. And this has so much meaning. I can't give it a complete 10 simply because, well, maybe I just need to, and I guess I'll change my number. I'm going to give it a 10 for that reason. This movie has so much in it that has me worried about the future of our society that I have to give it a 10 for classicness because this is the kind of thing that exists and people who are just doing their normal lives, handling their daily functions, their responsibilities, their professions, do not know what is ultimately going to happen. And so to that extent, that's what makes this a horror film not just for 1990, but leading up to now, that you don't know what you've said, done, or did not do that will ultimately cause some deranged psychopath to want to harm you or others. And so, unfortunately, I have to give it a 10 for that reason. Well, it's really hard to follow that up. I'll close the loop and say, for right now, as it stands, we have a 7.75 average for novelty between us and a 9.5 for classicness. I guess we can start with rewatchability just to continue to move the ball forward, but uh, that is a little bit haunting. Sorry, but I just thought it was something that I should share. You don't have to be sorry for it. So rewatchability... This is much harder to rewatch for me. I've said it many times. I have difficulty with the dread that I feel trying to watch some of these movies. But after having seen it, it's not nearly as terrifying in some senses as something like Aliens was when you really go into the hive. That one really was sick and disgusting comparatively. This one seems a little bit more grounded, and while Kathy Bates is clearly deranged and creepy, I just don't have as much of a problem with her as some other things that I've seen for this show. Now, the hobbling scene in particular, yes, at least when she hits the first ankle and it goes sideways, I could probably skip over that just fine. Outside of that, there really isn't a whole lot that I'm really, like, cringing at or truly dreading about this and there is enough from a compelling standpoint for the performance of both of the leads to rewatch this occasionally i don't think i'm going to go necessarily out of my way but it's also one that i think you know every five years or so might be one that i should put on occasionally just because it's probably one of rob reiner's better movies and so to revisit some of these i'm not going to revisit it the way I would a When Harry Met Sally or A Few Good Men, 
but it's something else that I think has some value. And despite its lack of availability on streaming comparative to some of those other films, I do think that it probably should be higher up on that. So I'm going to go with a neutral five. All right. Well, the enjoyment of this movie is the suspense. And to rewatch it, you're not going to have the suspense because you know what's going to happen. But by the same ilk that you were pointing out, I think I would enjoy rewatching this film with somebody else who's never seen it. Whether it be a friend that hasn't seen it or uh, a grandchild who's old enough to actually watch it, I, I can enjoy that. So to me, that is a six. It's something that I would rewatch with some level of enjoyment of sharing with somebody else. So I went with a six. Do you need any help with the math on that? No, it's a 5.5 between us. I will say that I've noticed there are several movies that I do like my first viewing of watching them a little bit more because of the time and place that I was in or the circumstances, the context. But I think the majority of the time, I would say almost two thirds of the time, the more enjoyable viewing for me is usually the second one, because I think, especially for this show, maybe where I've only seen it once beforehand and I liked the movie, I just get more out of it when I don't have to focus on the plot. And so I think because the dread of knowing what's eventually coming, but not knowing exactly when it's going to happen is out of the way, I think I actually would enjoy it more a second time, regardless of any other factors that would be thrown in on this. So again, that was a 5.5 average between us. Audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and a 90% for Rotten Tomato users. So to repeat the categories, we had a 5.25 for Legacy, an 8 for Impact Significance, 7.75 for Novelty, 9.5 for Classicness, 5.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 44.9, and that currently places it on the list, tied with Glory. Okay. Very different films. Yes. Although I definitely could have seen Denzel in this movie. But then again, I probably could see Denzel in just about any movie. Yes, probably. All right, remaining questions. Do you have any? I don't know. I guess uh, I, I think I pointed out I would have just squirted the lighter fluid all over her. Or while she was out of the room, poured the lighter fluid into the glass where the, your champagne was, just threw it over and lit her on fire. Just watched her burn. Maybe that's to, just a, a sadistic aspect of my personality, but... I was born in November, and we're supposedly all pyromaniacs, so I don't know. Okay. All right, so I'll give the ones that I was thinking of. For anybody that's driven in snow, why the hell did Paul think he could drive a Mustang? Not even just in a snowstorm, but just on the snow-covered roads of Colorado. That just seems stupid. For a guy that's been apparently traveling there for over 20 years, it just seems dumb. He was driving too fast. I mean, I I, I drive a, a Hyundai Sonata. I love the car, but on snow, it's a piece of shit. And uh, you have to really be careful and drive very slowly and carefully. And I would assume it's the same thing with that uh, 65 Mustang. I just, 
I don't know. It seems like a dumb choice to me. Question two. How long do you think Paul was captive? We never get a true indication. They say allegedly that they're going to need some things to thaw out. So you have to assume that it's at least a couple of months. But I don't think we get a full range for how long he's actually there. It's at least long enough to go from winter snowstorms to rainy season. I think it's probably about two to three months because he had healed enough that he could use his arm, which had been broken, or excuse me, his shoulder was dislocated. He could type. That's the other thing. I guess that is one remaining question I had is, how was he such a prolific writer when he was hunting pecking? Because James Gunn, when they were typing, was hunting pecking through the, the thing. So... I don't know. Ask your associate how he gets his pre-hearing briefs done. Yeah, I know. No, my question with the typewriter was, my initial thought was, is he's lifting the typewriter to build his strength. But I saw somewhere that there was an insinuation that it's somehow a mirrored effect where, yes, that's what you're supposed to think, but that he was already trying to lift it as practice, knowing he was going to use it against Annie the killer. I I can see that, though. Because there wasn't, there, how, many, how many things were in that room that you could use in order to gain an advantage and free yourself? I suppose, but at the same time, I think that was still before he had used the excess medicine in order to try and poison her. So I just, I don't know if he's quite to the level where he's practicing with that yet so much as trying to rebuild his strength. To me, that's what that said. I think you're trying to read a little bit too much into it if you think that he's having that much forethought already that he's going to have to use it because I think he's invested so much into the other plan already. And then just finally, my last one, and I really don't think there's a good answer for this one, but did Annie spill the wine on purpose? There was so many things or so many aspects of her character and what she was doing that seemed oblivious and then at times not oblivious that she had clear understanding. I have a hard time believing that she spilled the wine on purpose, but I I can't be certain. I'm with you almost 100% in lockstep. My first thought was is it's accidental, but I also would be able to see if I watched the scene back multiple times, I'm sure I could convince myself that she knew it was in there and then she figured a way out around it without revealing that she knew everything. The only trouble I have with that is, again, how the hobbling scene comes about. She clearly knew he had been sneaking out, but she couldn't figure out how. And she eventually confronted him about it and just dropped the the ball on all of it. But she waited and lied in wait, trying to figure all of this out. So there's a portion of me that says, oh, sure, she knew this was coming because she had seen him sneak out. But there's also another portion of me that says, eh... I don't know if she would have necessarily known that was his plan. So I don't know. I'm a bit torn. You know, yeah, I agree. But I mean, there's nothing that shows in this film that she had great deductive reasoning. When things became fairly obvious, she acted. But uh, the nuances didn't seem to really be there. Well, but she had to assume pretty early on that she knew the penguin had been moved. The only difficulty was is she didn't know how it had been done or how he got out. Yeah. 
So I think once she noticed the knife missing, then she had to act. And so maybe she knew it was coming, but she also knew that she had to act before he could act. And so that precipitated her having to make that confrontation. I can understand, yes. All right, so final thoughts for the week. None. I'm I'm looking forward to the continuation of the show through the end of the year and our schedule and hope that the audience is enjoying what we're doing and uh, looks forward to their own fall as things kind of settle in for uh, late fall and the winter season ahead. So I have a lot of movie tie-ins to specific dates on the calendar or the times of year and trying to mirror some of that. But also the week after next, we start our journalism month. And that's always been kind of a subgenre that you and I have always really liked. We already covered All the President's Men, but we have four other films that I think are going to be exceptional to really discuss. I think there's a lot of broad depth and material in all four of those films. So it'll be interesting to uh, be able to talk about those with you. And I think at least one, if not two guests that we have on during that period. Yes. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing another Alfred Hitchcock favorite of ours with Rope from 1948, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, screenplay by Arthur Lawrence, starring James Stewart, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in and our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.